I'm really going to try. You can do it. Best. Channel it. <clears throat> Wait, I have to practice. Well, well done. Okay, that's as low as I can go. Well done, my brave knight. <laughs> now, off with your head. That's as low as I can go. <laughs> I like but it. I feel like I feel like it would have been weird Good if job. I was just like, well done, my brave knight. Now, off with your head. <laughs> Like, well I had to try. <laughs> Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. So, Geneva, congratulations to you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Congratulations back, right back at you. Yeah, so this is our one-year anniversary Woo! episode, which is... Super exciting because I don't know about you, Geneva, but when we started this, I had no idea how long this I was like was three months. Last tops. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, we could do five years, we could do five weeks. I have no idea. Who's to say? Um, and here we are, fifty-three episodes later. Wow. So, um, thank you to any of the listeners that we have who have been with us since the very beginning. I don't know if we have any of those, but if we have one. Thank you for your service. <laughs> we appreciate um, you. Yes. And if you're new, welcome. It's a new year. And uh, what what better New Year's resolution than to start a new podcast? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just wanted to start off by asking you, Geneva, um, two questions. My first question is, yes. just give us an update regarding your feelings on the podcast, I guess. And then also, if you could let us know what your favorite quote intro is oh, of gosh. the past year, because <laughs> maybe our listeners will go back and listen to them. Yeah, they can be quite funny. <laughs> well, uh, to answer the f second question first, this is a very easy one because I just finished editing and uh, posting this episode, but it is the <laughs> me attempting to imitate Barbosa on our Pirates of the Caribbean episode, which golden <laughs> just absolutely golden about. i truly don't know when i've been more transformed by a character he his <laughs> spirit just you know just took over my body i was channeling his energy and i think it i think it turned out great it was phenomenal <laughs> for anyone who hasn't listened to that i recommend going back and just listening to the first like 30 seconds of that episode because Geneva, like she said, absolutely slays that monologue. But also, I am dying laughing. Tatum is the absolutely she opens her mouth. on the floor. Like, <laughs> so funny. Physically collapsed, like, unable to believe what she has just heard. Um, yes. Well, I've never seen you transform like that. It was like such a such a rare occasion, and I'm honored to be a part of it and to be you. a witness of that in real time. Thank you. This is what the podcast has brought out of us. You know, just so many, mm. so many memorable moments, so many moments of growth, personal change. 
We now have aspirations to become Oscar-winning actors. Oscar-winning actors. Our performance of these quotes are the proof of that. Like, we're definitely (laughs) capable. Uh, My very first actors on actors, me and Jeffrey Rush. mm, Oh, that would be so cool. (laughs) That would be so cool. Um, I would love it. Great choice. Great choice. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, to answer your first question, this has been such a wild ride. Mm. I've had so much fun doing this. It's been, um, yeah, it's been crazy. It's been a lot of high, high learning curve for me. (laughs) Uh, Tatum probably remembers sort of how like unsure and reluctant I was at the beginning and still am, you know, I've still got a quite a ways to go. Um, But I think it's been really good for me. It's really helped me to become more confident in myself in certain ways, become more confident in my opinions, slowly learning how to express myself better because as Tatum knows, I am not good at verbal processing or (laughs) articulating my thoughts. (laughs) I tend to be like, I have to sit down with it in a quiet room and write it out before I know what I want (laughs) to say. And so the um, experience of being in front of a microphone and having to suddenly entertain form new thoughts out loud is (laughs) it's it's a tricky one um but yeah I think this podcast has been really helpful helpful for me I think it's been a really real joy to have to be doing this with you Tatum you know as as a you know we've been friends for such a long time but doing this you know drastically different um (laughs) you know thing together this like new thing that we're both trying it's it's been ups and downs but i i'm so thankful to have you as my podcast co-host and um for the conversations that have come out of this for the ways that we've Mm. learned about ourselves about each other um that we've grown yeah i i've had a great time over the past year i'm so thankful for all the ways that it's helped me grow and all the things that it's um um brought into my life the ways that it the the new movies that it's introduced me to um yeah i've i've had a great time you know not without its challenges but oh totally very excited about what we've accomplished yeah right back at you friend um yeah so i guess i'll go ahead and answer the same question so i wholeheartedly agree with geneva that the curse of the black pearl intro i think tops all of the others um <laughs> but that being said i wanted to highlight i feel a like we're building it ones. up too much people are gonna go to it and be like <laughs> maybe it's just for us as friends it's great maybe the the listeners are like yeah going <laughs> low expectations you'll be delighted <laughs> yeah anyway sorry um, keep going but yeah some of the other ones that i really liked um you know going back all the way to the very beginning i really liked uh the intro to monty python the quote that i chose mm-hmm. for that i am particularly proud of my uh my performances impressions i don't know what to call them uh for our pulp fiction episode as well as our incredibles episode it was really fun to channel my inner edna mode that was just like a blast um so yeah i mean those are kind of my main ones the sound can of i just music, say I too can i to- oh can i just put in a word for your adam sandler impression in uncut oh. gems because that was sort of an unexpected delight to me uh you did a really yeah. great job like channeling his energy in a low-key way so that was a good one too yeah i was gonna mention that one and then also uh the sound of music intro i sang the hills are alive quite poorly and i got a great laughing reaction out of geneva which was a fun time 
Um, I also really liked our Paper Moon intro. That was fun to kind of go back and forth on that one. Um, but yeah, so those are those are all of my favorites. But I do think the Curse of the Black Pearl takes the cake with uh, the Incredibles, Pulp Fiction, and Monty Python just behind it. So. Um, yeah, I really, that's one of my favorite parts of recording the podcast. I love pulling out quotes and then being able to kind of do our interpretation of it because we never really know what to expect, which is just fun. So, um, yeah, as far as my feelings about the podcast, I, yeah, I, I had really, like I said, I had no idea what success would look like for us with this Geneva and I when we started it we were like hey you know if this lasts a few weeks that's fine if it lasts a long time that's fine but we just want to make sure that like it's always fun for us and it's never something that is like getting in the way of our friendship and I think um I think this podcast has in ways that I did not anticipate it has revealed different aspects of ourselves and each other and really forced our friendship to grow in ways that it probably otherwise wouldn't have like naturally. Um, you've learned, I've learned a lot about your brain and your communication style and things that you love and things that you don't love. And I think that that's just a really beautiful thing. Um, like Geneva said, it, it, you know, it has its ups and its downs. Sometimes we get, you know, tired or sometimes we get into ruts where it's like, it's kind of hard for me that you don't like a lot of these movies that I really love and vice versa. Um, but like I said, we always come back to a conversation and at the center of it all is our friendship. And I think that that's just a really special thing. Um, Geneva and I have known each other a long time and, I think we've kind of known for a while that our personalities would be compatible in some sort of creative collaboration. And I'm just so grateful that we kind of solidified what that was. And I'm honored to get to do this together and with you. Um, You know, even though we have very few listeners, it doesn't matter because we have a great time. So um, yet we have very few listeners yet. Yet. Sorry. Yes. Yes. We're going to blow up this year. I saw the opportunity. I had to take it. <laughs> that That is our goal for 2024. We're going to blow up and we're going to have 5 million <laughs> oh, weekly yeah. listeners by the end of this year. <laughs> yeah. um, Taylor Swift, we're coming for you. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. We're going to start I don't know doing, why she's the first person that came to mind. <laughs> we're going to start doing a live tour, <laughs> recording episodes oh like in front of an audience. <laughs> We sit oh we gosh. sit in a theater with an audience, we all watch it together, and then we sit down and talk about it, like no preparation <laughs> whatsoever. Um There are podcasts that do that. That would be crazy. I don't know how they do that, but they do. I wonder what that would look like. That'd be fun, but I feel like you'd probably hate it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would need a little bit more work on myself before I'd be ready for that. <laughs> so that's also on our bucket list for 2024. We're going to have 5 million weekly right. listeners and we're going to tour the world doing live oh in theater viewing. Tatum, and Tatum would already be, be set. She's a performer. Oh, <laughs> far from it. I prefer to be behind the camera, but... Um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Is there, uh, anything else you want to add on this special one year anniversary, this milestone that we've reached? I know it's crazy to think. Yeah. 
Um, oh gosh, you didn't prepare me for this question. I'm I'm not good with. I know. I'm <laughs> no, so it's sorry. Okay. It's okay. <laughs> I meant to text you in advance, and then I just yeah, forgot. No worries. I, I will think of something incredibly beautiful and eloquent and moving as soon as we get off the record. <laughs> <laughs> you can edit it. It's in fine. In we'll just re-record okay. everything. We'll re-record everything. <laughs> it's fine. Good. We'll start the entire episode right. over. Let's just start and... the whole year over. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. Let's go back to 2019. Let's do that. Actually, that sounds great. I would be on board with that. Yeah. It, well, we could just collectively move back the clock. I don't know if I want to go back to 2019 because then we'd have to experience 2020 through now all over again. So, like, <laughs> oh, I thought we were going back to a parallel universe 2019 where covid doesn't happen mm. maybe we just need that's that's what i want maybe we're just in the darkest timeline and we need to i think we, we gotta, need to roll another to dice out. as we order pizza don't you see my the the black beard the <laughs> black goatee that i have taped around my mouth indeed yes <laughs> let's go back to our pizza party and roll the dice again so community reference to anyone who's not yes familiar. of course it yeah. is geneva exactly of course exactly. it is geneva <laughs> Roxanne, uh. no. <laughs> ah, oh so my gosh. good. Just um, one of the best episodes of television ever. So good. Um, okay. Anyway, um, on that note, I'm gonna kind of jump into our um discussion for today. So the reason that I chose this movie, so this week was my pick, but I also wanted to choose something that. I thought would be a special movie for both of us to celebrate our one year anniversary. So I have chosen um, the 2021 movie, The Green Knight, because it is a film that Geneva and I both love very, very dearly. Adore. Um, and mm -hmm. I just thought it would be fun to talk about. I think it's kind of a coincidence that I, I didn't remember because I hadn't seen this movie in a while, but this is like kind of a almost definitely a Christmas movie. Oh, it's <laughs> and fully so a Christmas movie. This is Christmas like, movie in my heart. <laughs> It's very much so a Christmas movie. Yes. And so the fact that this episode is coming out close to Christmas is, I feel like, a coincidence, but a timely coincidence. Um, so, yeah, all of that being said, I just want to give context for why this episode was chosen. Um, I have no idea how long this episode will be because her and I both adore this film. So uh, if you're ready to come on this journey with us to our version of The Green Castle, please come. Um, if not, Come back next week. I don't know. Do whatever you want. Um, <laughs> Do whatever you want. No, Do but seriously, you if you have not seen this movie, please go watch this movie. It is so good. It's very good. Um, yes. Just be prepared to like activate. Well, no. Anyway, I'm not going to say that. We'll get into that later. Ooh. Anyway. Right. Okay. Here we go. All right. Today on the show, we will be discussing David Lowry's cult epic masterpiece, The Green Knight, which he wrote, directed, and edited. Oh, uh, really? Yes. That editing, I did not know. Yes. I will give you some background on David Lowry, actually, before this is Ooh, done, because okay. there's some cool stuff about him. Um, but yeah, so released in 2021 and based on the 14th century poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, this film tells the story of Sir Gawain the nephew of a great king who accepts the challenge of an unknown green knight in the pursuit of honor. The challenge requires Sir Gawain to strike a blow to the knight's head, only to then seek him out one year later so that the knight can return the same blow. While on his journey to find the knight, Sir Gawain stumbles upon many visions and confronts many temptations that attempt to distract him, to distract and deter him from his ultimate goal. So what happens after the screen cuts to black? 
Does Sir Gawain get his head chopped off after, after all? Does he achieve the honor he, was, he so dearly wanted? What is the significance of the lady's monologue? What the fuck does the green cloth belt mean anyway? <laughs> These are all questions that we will discuss today. But before that, here's a little background on the production of the film. So though the film did not have that much financial success, it did still make a profit. Um, it garnered $19 million at the box office after being made with a budget of $15 million. And in addition, The Green Knight was a, cr- a critical success, landing on the list of many critics' top 10 lists of the year. So um, I just have some information here regarding specific like themes from the movie itself and some quotes from David Lowry just to give a little bit of context. Um, again, I've said this in the past, uh, prep can be kind of time-consuming, and sometimes I just don't have the energy to rephrase everything from Wikipedia. So... Uh, I'm just going to read stuff from Wikipedia. Go check it out uh, on your own time. But that's just me prefacing. All of this is from Wikipedia. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So some of Lowry's thoughts regarding the end of the film. So this says, while Gawain's ultimate fate is left ambiguous at the end of the film, Lowry originally shot a more explicit and definitive ending, but felt that it would affect audiences' feelings coming away from the film. And he describes the film as being about the importance of comporting oneself with integrity and goodness over being concerned with one's legacy. Though the question of Gawain's ultimate fate is left intentionally ambiguous, Lowry stated that he wanted the possibility of Gawain being beheaded to be a, quote, positive thing. He faces the fate bravely, and there's honor and integrity in that. But that doesn't mean that he's dead. He's killed. He received the blow that he was dealt and all is set right with, within the universe of the film, unquote. Um, and then just a little bit more context I that I a, thought was um, interesting. Can I ask a quick question? I don't know if you have the answer to this, but mm-hmm. did he say what the more explicit and definitive ending that he shot was? Not from the research that I saw, but I'm assuming it's that we see his head get chopped off. But that's just Okay, fine. interesting. But I don't I, um Okay, cool. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I after watching this movie, I went back and reread the original poem. It's it's not super long. It takes like a, less than a couple hours to, to read. Um, so every now and then I might be pulling out some knowledge from what happens in the poem. But it was so inter- fascinating to reread because there are so many changes between the poem and the movie. And I think some of those might be interesting to talk about or give context to it. But anyway, yeah, continue giving uh, all this info because this is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, so Lowry giving some information just kind of about some one of the major themes in the movie, which I found this to be super interesting. So Lowry stated that the mono- the monologue by Lady Vikander's Lady Berlatak reflects both the symbolism of Arthurian Christian civilization being in conflict with paganism and nature and in his own sentiment that nature will inevitably win over civilization and bring peace. The Green Knight's depiction as a tree-like entity also depicts nature and paganism, invading the dull sanctum of the round table and Arthur's kingdom. This is further emphasized by Lowry's decision to portray Arthur and Guinevere as sickly, alluding to the waning control of the civilization they represent. I thought that was really interesting because that provides several answers to a lot of questions that I had while watching this. It's just like, why does he, why did they choose to have him look like that? Why do Arthur and Guinevere look sick? You know, all of these things. And, um, 
so yeah, I thought that was an interesting, uh, just discovery. So yeah. Um, and just to give a little bit more, uh, context on David Lowry specifically. So we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there is another excellent podcast called team Deacons and David Lowry was a guest on that show. It is an incredible episode. I highly recommend if you are at all interested in film or David Lowry, just check it out. It's great. Um, but David Lowry, unfortunately in that episode, he really didn't share much about the Green Knight. They he, talked mostly. They barely asked him about the Green Knight. I was so disappointed. I mean, not in the interview overall, because it's great. But yeah, they barely even talk about it. Yeah, they mostly talked about his other films, which I was a little bit bummed about. But he does touch on kind of a little bit of his taste in terms of what he likes to film and what he likes to capture. And I think we see a lot of that in this movie because he was talking about how he really, really likes movies where there are just really, really long takes of people doing mundane things. And we have so much of that in this movie of just, you know, Gawain sitting on a horse, riding on a horse for five minutes or you know him laying underneath trees for a long time and the camera's just spinning around in circles there's so many moments of that in this movie and it was interesting for me to have that perspective going into this because I did not know that um the last time I watched this movie so yeah that's kind of everything I've got for the opening to this Geneva do you have any um like just overarching info that you can share regarding the poem before we start, because I have not read it. So yeah, Yeah, if you don't, that's fine. But I was just curious if you wanted to add a little something. Yeah, definitely. Um, Like I said, it was really fascinating to go back and reread it because the sort of general shape of the story is the same, but kind of coming at it from a different perspective. So the idea in the poem is that Gawain is he is one of the he's young and very untested but he is a pure of heart brave you know he's one of the best of the best of king arthur's court and this is not a king arthur's court in decline this is kind of king arthur's court in its prime and gawain is sort of this you know younger generation but who is an example of what is great to offer the world about king arthur's court and so so much of him deciding to take on the Green Knight's challenge is not necessarily about his honor specifically, but about the honor, representing the honor of Arthur and Camelot to the world. And um, that then affects the rest of the story as he's coming to um, the challenges faced by Lady Bertilic, because it's less about exposing his sort of baseness and more about his this is a um well the the in the story the um the lord of the manor lord bertilek and um gawain did uh create this agreement between the two of them that they will um go and do their separate things gawain will stay in the castle and lord bertilek will go hunting which we see in the movie but they do this three days in the in a row And each day the lady comes to Gawain and tries to seduce him and he resists and all she does is give him a kiss. And then at the end of the day, he gives it to 
um, the Lord. But then on the last day, she gives him this girdle, which has not been previously seen in the movie. But she tells him this girdle will keep you from harm. And at first he's going to resist. But then once he learns that it's going to keep him from harm, he um, agrees. And then when he and the Lord share their winnings, he intentionally keeps back mention of the girdle. And so this is kind of framed as his one um, mistake or his one sort of failing is that he fears death too much, you know, as opposed to, you know, he his mistake is not being willing to com- confront everything that he's facing completely on, um, you know, with, with no protection, basically. And the ending of the story, it ends with the Green Knight three times um, starting to land the blow on Gawain. The first time he flinches and the Green Knight draws back. The second time he doesn't flinch, but the Green Knight um, doesn't land the blow. And then the third time the Green Knight swings and he just nicks Gawain on the neck. And then he reveals he is actually the Lord Lord Bertolick in disguise he says basically that's to pay you back for the, you know, two free swings for the two times that you gave me the the winnings you were supposed to give. One little nick for the time that you kept something back. But it's it's also this sense of very um there's a sense of kind of joy to it where Gawain is extremely upset with himself because of what he sees as his own mistake but basically everyone else is like no no no, Gawain you're fine (laughs) like it's very understandable to be afraid of death like calm down and so he goes back and he's alive and he's in triumph and um it's yeah it's it is it's so different from the movie because there is this sense of um celebration to it um but it, it is also this you know Exploring similar themes, but from a very different direction. This idea of what is your life made of if you do not have honor? And Gawain, as the most honorable person of all, is the most self-flagellating, basically, when when he sees his own betrayal of his honor. Whereas everyone else is kind of like, no, it's fine, <laughs> you know? Um, but yeah, in the in the poem, Gawain un- unambiguously lives. The, the Green Knight basically giving him he gives him the blow but it's just a nick on the neck and that is standing in for what Gawain Gawain has received what he gave and now everything has been put back to right and um the world can continue as it as it has been but it's actually very interesting what you said before about nature versus paganism uh nature versus civilization and um like the civilization versus wildness and paganism and Christianity, because that's all there in the poem as well, which is really fascinating. Like there's so much contrast to it. There's all this dualism. There's a really extended period of time where Gawain is in the castle and he's sort of, you know, relaxing in luxury and Lady Bertolick is trying to seduce him. But then it keeps cutting to these really really extreme, like visceral descriptions of Lord Bertolick hunting and um, like flaying the rabbits that he's um, hunted and things like that. And kind of cutting between the sort of, um, you know, masculine, feminine, wildness, civilization, like all these different, um, do these dualities that make up this medieval world. Yeah, it's really, really fascinating. I highly recommend reading the poem because it's so, in some ways, it's so, you know, foreign to our modern imaginations but in some ways it's so close as well that's really interesting 
like I said, I have not read the poem. Um, <clears throat> but based off of what you just said, it sounds like, at least in my interpretation of it, it sounds like the poem and the movie are very different in the sense that I feel like with the movie, it feels it feels so vague and ambiguous to me that you could kind of attach so many different meanings to it depending on who you are. Like I've seen some people respond to this movie by saying that this movie is ultimately about facing the reality of life and that no matter what you do, life isn't worth living. And so you might as well just die and that's the best option. And so you die with honor and that's better than living out the rest of your life. And then there's some people who come out of this seeing it as like a completely abstract thing of like, no, he's just tripping balls the entire movie and he's just like on drugs. Um, (laughs) And there's other people too that kind of look at it similar to what you were saying. And there's people who say it's mostly about the concept of honor and loyalty to family and things like that. And so it sounds like based off of what you are saying about the poem that, um, that the movie is a lot, at least from what I'm hearing, it seems to be a lot more open-ended and ambiguous than the poem is. And I think that that's really cool because for me, when watching this movie, so I've seen it twice. This is my second time watching it. I saw it when it first came out. I'm still heartbroken that I was not able to see it in theaters because I was living in Spain at the time and this movie was only released in theaters in the U.S., Um, but it was interesting watching it this time around because I remember the first time that I watched this movie, you know, something that you and I have talked about in the past and quite regularly since beginning to record this podcast is that you kind of process movies in more of an intellectual way and I process them in more of a feeling emotional sort of way. And so this movie, the first time I watched it, I was very much so just like, here for the vibes (laughs) you know I was like oh my gosh the cinematography is great I love this world I love this acting this is so cool I love this but the movie ended and I was like I think I need to watch it again because I'm very confused (laughs) um and but unfortunately I did not watch it a second time until last night when I watched it again And it was interesting watching it the second time because I knew more of what I was getting into. And so I had kind of the the brain capacity to kind of think a little bit harder while I was watching it, being aware of some of the details I would have to pay more attention to. And so just thinking about all of the different interpretations of people watching this movie, even I had two different interpretations in the two times that I watched it because the first time it was just like, oh, feelings, cool, this is fun. And then the second time was like, oh, I think this means that. And the theme of this might represent this. Also, I'm pretty sure he is tripping balls for the last like (laughs) 45 minutes of this movie. Um, Does that make it worse? Does that make it better? Does it mean nothing? Is it just a thing that happens? Like, I don't know. Um, But yeah, I just I like I like the concept of at least maybe the way that you're describing it. The poem sounds like it's a little bit more clear in what it is and this is more unclear maybe yeah I mean yes and no because it's like with any great work of literature that endures throughout the ages one of the reasons that it will endure is because there are a lot of ways to interpret it and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of different themes to draw out of it and ways that you can apply it to changing situations so I wouldn't say it's a a work that's completely just clear and explicit because I mean 
too with a lot of medieval literature it's like so much of it is allegorical allegorical so much of it is you know mythical or archetypal you know it's not psychological reality that we're dealing with it's a completely different mode of telling stories but definitely in the sense of like there is you know it continues past the point that this <laughs> movie continues like we see what the result is of his encounter with the green knight and we see him journey back home and we see what the you know the shape of the rest of his life is going to be in a way that this movie makes the decision to stop at that point and allow the the viewer to extrapolate that based on their interpretations of the events that have come before this so yeah um yeah, it's just really, really fascinating to see the the adaptation choices that were made and how, like, you know, the way that people experience storytelling now is so different from how people experience storytelling in the 1400s, I think, <laughs> is when this poem, the poem was first written. It's 14th so, century. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's just... Um, you know, different expectations, but grappling with very similar themes and questions um, just in a very different way. Does he eat mushrooms in the poem? <laughs> it's not mentioned. <laughs> Actually, what's really interesting is that basically nothing between him leaving Camelot and him meeting up with the Bertilecks are is explicitly mentioned in the poem. They, it just basically says, like, he journeyed for a long while. It was really difficult. He saw some giants at one point. He battled some wild animals. And then he found the Bertilix Manor. You know, it's it's basically everything in between was made up by David Lowry. I think a lot based on... I love that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know it's drawing from some other legends. Like, the legend of St. Winifred is a pre-existing Welsh legend that he drew in and placed within there, which I think is really cool. Um, so, but yeah, again, very, very different. Yeah. Okay. So at the risk of getting too nerdy, let's kind of transition to talking more specifically about the movie. Um, so I wanted to start off by just reading the opening quote that we have for this movie, just for context. So the opening, the opening quote is, look, see a world that holds more wonders than any since earth was born. And of all who reigned o'er, none had renown like the boy who pulled sword from stone. But this is not that king, nor is this his song. Let me tell you instead a new tale. I'll lay it down as I've heard it told. It's letter sent, it's history pressed, of an adventure brave and bold, forever set in heart in stone, like all great myths of old. So... That's just like, I don't know. I wanted to start by reading that quote that we, oh. that the movie opens with. Um, I love it so much. Yes. Very. Uh, and then the crown coming down and his bed bursts into flame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually have a question. I probably could have gone back and rewatched this and I meant to do that, but I forgot. You know how we have that opening sequence kind of in that little, um, it's not like a farm, but there's all those animals and stuff. And there's that guy sitting slumped in the corner and people are coming in and out. I, and again, I'm not remembering perfectly what it looked like, but yes, there is a point when there's a house in the background and it's on fire. And I was like, was it on fire the whole time? And I just missed it. Or was it mostly not on fire? And then at some point it is, do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about? 
yes, I know what you're talking about. And I'm trying to look it up <laughs> as we're speaking because I remember seeing an interview where David Lowry or someone, I don't remember if it was him or, or some like someone responding to the movie, like explained, you know, at least a theory of what it refers to. And I believe, okay, yes, here it is. So apparently it's a reference to um, uh, the Siege of Troy and Paris and Helen running off together while Troy burns, which doesn't really, like, I don't know how someone thought of that just watching it. It must be something David Lowry said in an interview. But, like, as I'm thinking about this, it's fascinating because actually the poem starts with a specifically talking about the Siege of Troy and, like, bringing this myth of Gawain and rooting it back into the the myths of the the archaic, you know, what would have been even for the medievals, the archaic past and how like, you know, this idea of origin stories and great heroes of the past and who are those heroes for us now and stuff like that. So, yeah, that's my understanding of what it represents. Um, I could be wrong, but I that's yeah, what my understanding is. Yeah. So I also I did just pull up the the scene and it that building is not on fire when it starts. So that is like you see like yeah because you see like a couple flames coming through a window and then it just gradually the fire grows and grows and grows well initially there's no smoke or flames at all which was what i was trying to see like does it start already on fire does it start not on fire and initially like there's nothing there's nothing there and then it gets bigger and bigger so Mm -hmm. okay that's cool because i was watching it and i was like did i just not notice this the whole time but no it wasn't there the whole time cool um Okay. But again, with what you said about David Lowry loving long extended mm-hmm. scenes of people doing sort of mundane things, not that a house fire is mundane. But. And I love it too. I'm so here for it. Every time he does it, I'm like, yes, this is amazing. This is not too long. This is like, take me on this journey, please. And thank mm-hmm. you. It's it's like his own version of world building. It's just exist in this space. And the longer you exist here, the more real it will feel to you. And that's that's how it works for me. I'm not like, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm bored. It's like, oh, I feel like I'm in this world even more. Um, yeah, and it forces you to consider more closely the things that are happening on screen and whether there's a symbolic meaning to it like there is here or, um, you know, what is going on behind the, in in the brains of the people as they're, they're going about their daily business. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of transitioning from that a little bit my next note that I have is just straight up recognizing that from the very beginning we have a very um I don't know if unique is the right word right word but a very distinct cinematography style that's going to be occurring throughout this movie because um Sir Gawain kind of wakes up and he's in this brothel and we see as he's walking out the camera's kind of below him and it's on an angle and the camera is just so interesting in this movie the camera is almost like a character in and of itself because it you know like we've said it we have long shots where it's doing 360 turns and then back around the other way and the camera flips upside down and it's sideways and I just I just love how that's established from the very beginning that there's something kind of magical and fantastical going on in this world and it's not like in my opinion this isn't meant to be seen as reality it's meant to be seen as I don't know, this like artistically fantastical land, which I love because Tatum loves artistically fantastical lands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, sometimes it's, it seems very detached from the story. I mean, like those, those 
David Lowry long takes that are kind of from a distance. Uh, I forget the, what the, the technical term from that is, but it's a very sort of... What, wide shots? De- yeah, it's a very detached analytical way of shooting a film. You know, it's very much you are the observer looking in on another world. But then, like you say, there are these shots like the camera flipping upside down as he's journeying further and further into this world that's just increasingly enchanted and unknowable and terrifying that are very subjective and very, you know, placing you alongside Gawain in this fantastical journey. Um, And so the way that it kind of switches between those two modes seamlessly is so entrancing to me in this movie. That's interesting, because I would say that the wide shots do the same thing. Oh, interesting. How so? I just, I feel like, I feel like when the shots, because there's, so, I mean, I want to know what lenses they were using, because the it's so incredibly wide. <laughs> Every some of these frame shots. of painting. It's yeah, it's, gorgeous. it's crazy. And for me, it kind of makes me feel like, oh no, you're not just looking at this character. You're looking at all of their surroundings as well, which kind of reestablishes like, you are here and you are in this world with this person and you're seeing because like even the fact that the camera is moving in 360 it's like you're seeing all of the aspects of what they're seeing and and I don't know I think it also kind of depicts a lot of what Gawain is going through of like he's in a lot of ways very isolated in this movie and kind of on his own hero's journey of just him all by himself and sometimes people come in and out but he kind of feels like his own little entity and everything else is just there because it happens to be there. And so I don't know. I feel like the the wide shots communicate just as much as everything else that the world of this character is like we are seeing his world. Like it's it's his world. We're just living, you know, and um I think the cinematography in this movie is particularly just very, um, it's very dynamic. And obviously we have a lot of specific lighting and color correction and things like that as well, which even add to um, just the imagery of, of what Lowry is trying to communicate. And I'm sure if I was in film school, you know, I would write a whole paper on analyzing the different colors of different scenes and the commonalities between and why. Blah, blah, blah. I, I mean, there's so much to this movie which I think why is why for you and I it's such a special film because there are just layers upon layers upon layers to dig into here and I can understand why for some people would be overwhelming to the point that they're like I'm just confused and I don't get this so I'm checking out but yeah for me I was talking to someone who was bored by mm -hmm. it and I was like I don't understand how that's possible I kind of understand, but I don't understand. I understand how it's possible. I just disagree. It's kind of like, I mean, they're very different movies, but I think about things like Seven Seal and Stalker and stuff like that. It's like, I, like I can see why people would be bored. Am I? No, I think it's an absolute masterpiece, but like I can understand. Because um, in a lot of ways, this movie doesn't really have a plot. It's very similar to the plot of, uh, Mad Max Fury Road where it's like travel to the thing come back you know <laughs> and everything that happens in between <laughs> there and back again <laughs> exactly A Hobbit's like Tale by Bilbo Baggins yes um, and so I-, I just especially hearing your perspective from the poem and things like that I just love all of these elements that Lowry has added in between to really kind of 
emphasize more about Gawain's state of mind and, you know, his his emotional journey that is happening to him mm-hmm. while on this physical journey. Um, it's just so interesting why he chose the things that he did. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Can we also appreciate, too, as we're talking about the cinematography, what an incredible the job they did at location scouting? Because mm-hmm. filmed and, in and Ireland, it's, by it's the hard way. to tell sometimes. Yes, Ireland, which is just basically like a, <laughs> like a, you know, a medieval fantasy world in itself. Like some of these locations, you're like, and I mean, I mean, some of them may be very beautiful, elaborate sets. I, I don't know fully what is the the divide between the two of them, but you know, so many of them are very obviously actual physical locations, and they just did an incredible job of establishing this world that really seems wild and magical and unknowable you know like and this is the thing that i oh ugh, sorry i took a med- class in medieval fantasy literature in college which i love and like know it's all that to me why have you never yes, told it was me that so much fun that's where i first read sir gawain um sir gawain in the green knights and you know we read a bunch of arthurian lore and stuff like that and this idea of the knight errand where you know it's like there is the sort of safe civilization of Camelot, but then the knight ventures out, out, out of doors, you know, trying to go and bring a little bit of peace and justice to the world. And they venture into this world that is just completely um, vast and terrifying. And there are strange mystical things that you wouldn't see if the if you stayed home in your you know safe, comfortable land. But if you go out, you see all these wonders and enchantments. Like, it's just such a cool idea. This movie conveys it so, so well. It's a, it's a scary world out there, Frodo, walking outside your door. And if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Uh, the wise and wonderful Bilbo Baggins. May he rest in peace. Actually, no, he went to Valinor, yes. so he's living forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, we love Valinor. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to be great. nerdy about that. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> If there's ever an episode to be nerdy on, I feel like this is a good one. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's just one more thing I wanted to mention regarding cinematography. Oh, first yes. of all, the cinematographer, let's give him credit. His name is Andrew Dross Palermo. So just want to oh shout him all out. The snaps. Great job. Um, but I also wanted to mention, I found it very interesting that in the, um, the round table room, when Gawain first enters and we have this scene with, uh, before the night comes in and everything, it's, there's very, there's a lot of balanced shots here. And again, if I were to go back and write a paper about this movie, there's so many things I could analyze, but I find it very interesting that there are certain moments when the camera is so specifically and intentionally kind of just like warping our perspective and doing crazy things. But then there's other scenes where it's very clearly just being like, no, this is a perfectly balanced shot and the camera is staying in place or it's just moving very in a straight line, a straight tracking shot. I just think that it's, it's really interesting. The, the juxtaposition of those, um, of those two things. And also, speaking of speaking of juxtaposition, I found it to be man, I appreciated this so much this time around. The the scene where um kind of the entire scene in the um the round table room and kind of cutting back and forth between his mother the witch and them doing their ceremony and then going back. I just loved 
the intercutting of that and also just like kind of learning that again David Lowry edited this movie himself and so apparently it took him a year to edit that scene alone which I think you can see how much care went into choosing the specific moments when you're going to cut back and how tight the camera is and which choices we're making and I just thought it was really really cool and especially since from the research that I did it doesn't seem like the mother is as much of a prominent character in the poem but the fact that he really gave her a lot more material here and it sounds like he introduced this idea of her creating this spell that even brought the green knight in the first place which I think is such a fascinating choice um But yeah, there's just so much going on in this scene that I love. But um, I just found that that artistic choice that he made of kind of establishing her in that role and also just how that scene is edited. I love it. Also, I am obsessed with the sound design of the Green Knight when he moves. I, I don't know how or what, where by whom like I have no clue how they created that sound but it is so it has this incredible ability of like it it it, it's kind of a haunting sound but also kind of an intriguing sound of ooh, what is that that's kind of cool um but also a very fantasy land sound I just think it's really really incredible and kind of the how when he walks it's so heavy and so loud but when he moves it's kind of creaky and it's just it's so cool so yeah yeah, those are some thoughts I have about that particular mm -hmm. scene yeah just the character design of the green knight and the decision to make him a tree man basically he's an ent you know in the poem he's He's described (laughs) as he's a big physically imposing knight who's green but in this movie it's so making that connection between the green knight and the earth nature wildness so explicit and the um I think I read somewhere that it's it's not CGI. It's all makeup and prosthetics, which I did not realize. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It looks oh, so I've got good. Some fun facts about that. Oh, please. Actually, I'm going to jump in and read something. So this is another thing that I have written down from Wikipedia. Straight rip. So I'm saying this is plagiarism. Just putting that out there. <laughs> all the credit, credit where credit is. All due. the credit to whoever created this Wikipedia information from some article somewhere. Um, Who please cited their sources. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to read this. So no, no digital visual effects were used in the creating of the Green Knight during the round table scene. Lowry preferred this in order to give the character presence on set. Actor Ralph Innocen wore prosthetics designed by Barry Gower. Scenes involving the horse alternated with a false mount that was wheeled around with a dolly after the initial horse used for the scenes would not cooperate with Innocent. Lowry stated that the crew used practical effects. <laughs> Lowry stated that the crew used practical effects to make the Green Knight appear larger, such as mounting Innocent on platforms. G- digital effects were later used during the Green Knight's hibernation scene, including subtly transforming the knight's face into that of other cast members, which that was something I noticed the second time around in in that like final scene. I was like, wait a minute. His face looks like the face of other people. What's going on? This is crazy. I thought that was so cool this time around, um, especially kind of circling back to that line where the fox slash his mother tells him like the green knight is someone that, you know, 
and it yeah there's just so much here there's so much here (laughs) there's so much (laughs) um since we're talking mm-hmm. about the round table scene, can we give a moment of appreciation for Sean Harris and Kate Dickey as, um, I, I mean, I think they're just credited as the king and queen. It's King yes. Arthur and Queen Guinevere. Sean mm-hmm. Harris in particular, he was my favorite supporting actor of 2021. Mm-hmm. I love his performance so much in this movie. He's such a like, he's so warm in the role in a way that's very unexpected. Hmm. Um but also, like, you know, I believe him as a king who has had to lead armies totally. and has fought many battles and has defeated many foes. But at the same time, there is this sort of caring aspect to him. But he is also this sort of decaying creature who, you know, his his life and his um, his ability to be physically active is slowly drip- dropping away from him. And he's really starting to question, what is my legacy now? And... I don't know if Gawain at the beginning of the movie is like if he's always considered to be Arthur's heir, but it becomes apparent by the end that he is Arthur's heir. He's the next generation. And so him at the beginning of the movie is kind of, oh, I've never really thought to like invest in this person who's going to be taking over my entire legacy. But now I'm starting to think about that. And I realize I have no idea who this person is. And I want to use the time that I have left to try and imbue him with some of the, you know, the qualities that I really would like him to have to carry on what I've built here. Um, but doesn't he, you know, doesn't he say at some point that, um, which I will say the opening parts of this movie before he actually leaves to go on his journey it is kind of hard to hear people it's very echoey and people are kind of talking quietly and his voice in particular is is very uh it's so like this. I can, I, the fact that he calls unlike everyone else he calls Gawain Garwin mm-hmm. which I love so much but I don't know why he does that but it's great doesn't he mention at some point in some like speech in that scene that he has a son who normally sits in that chair, but because he's not present, Gawain should sit there instead and take his place temporarily. Yes. Doesn't he say mm-hmm. something like that? He does, yeah, which I was so curious about because that's the only reference that I can remember in the, the film that there might be someone else above Gar- Ga- Garwin, Gawain um, as the heir. But then at the end, it is Gawain who who seems to be in line to the throne at least in this sort of alternate dream version and so yeah i i found that very curious yeah so, unless they're just referring to like lancelot is uh you know arthur's number two and lancelot's away or something like that because i think in the arthurian i actually i never never mind i was gonna say i don't know if arthur and guinevere had any children in the arthurian legends but actually i have no idea so I'm not gonna speak to that i know absolutely nothing about the arthurian legends other than king arthur is someone that people care about uh that's literally all i know about him <laughs> i don't even know if he's real um but anyway um so before we kind of move on because i'm realizing we're like an hour in and have only oh, gone gosh, through are like we 15 minutes yeah. of this movie um what what are your Yes. Um, What are your thoughts on the fact that uh, Lowry chose to include this aspect of the mother kind of creating this spell? Because I have my own interpretation, but I'm I'm wondering what yours is, because that was something where the first time I watched this movie, I was like, okay, 
So what's up with the mom? I don't understand. But this time around, I actually have a little bit of a takeaway from what that might mean. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I was really paying so much more attention to the mother this time around. Um, I know, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I think it's Sarita Chowdhury is the the actress who plays her. She's absolutely wonderful. Her face is so expressive. She has so few lines, but her face is so expressive. Um Rewatching this movie, <laughs> if, I if anyone read... likes her, she's in Homeland. You could see her in Homeland. Oh, I did not know that. Um, I think she's in a movie called Mississippi Masala from the '90s with Denzel Washington. Um, I'm thinking of the right actress, mm. and she's great. In that anyway. Um, back when this movie came out, I read this like critical sort of think piece about it that was like interpreting it in the lens of like <laughs> millennials trying to take on adulthood in a world that is increasingly confusing and the rules are changing. And I <laughs> kept thinking about that and kind of interpreting this movie through that lens on this rewatch. I think the, um, the mother character is so fascinating in thinking, in framing the whole story as this is a mother who is trying to test her son and bring something out of him and then starts to get worried because she doesn't like what the results are and <laughs> is, you know, sort of trying to to potentially shape the results or push her son into to growing through what is happening. I found that really interesting and trying to interpret the different things that, that he encounters and think, oh, you know, is the fox his mother? Is the fox not his mother? You know, what does the girdle mean when she gives it to him, when it reappears? Is that her or is that someone pretending to be her? Like, you know, there are so many different ways to view her influence in this movie. Um, and I'm still trying to unpick it all. But I think rewatching the movie and really focusing in on that mother-son relationship, even even though she's in the movie so little, I think her presence is so heavily felt because, I mean she created the green knight she created this entire game but this idea of her being disappointed in her son and wanting better or more or something different for him and then that unleashing something that she may not necessarily be able to predict or like um was really interesting to me yeah i i i totally see where you're coming from and i think my interpretation is is similar but a little bit different um, I kind of saw her as this this protective mother who has these, you know, obviously she's a witch, so she has specific powers. And I saw her being someone who who wants her son to have honor so that he can have just like kind of a, a safe life. So she gives him this this belt that, you know, like you were saying, it kind of comes back. It's like, okay, where has this been the whole time? What it blah, blah, blah. Um, but this idea of like, while you wear this, nothing will like you, nothing will bring you harm essentially. And so when he finally reaches the green knight, I think it's something where she kind of set him up in a way where it's like, whether you return and come back and you have honor because you're lying to people and telling people that you did what you said you were going to do, or you stay there and you follow through on what the green knight said, like either way you have honor and I just that that was my interpretation, because when we see him travel back home, you know, when he's thinking about what his future would be if he went back home, we see her like standing by his side and taking care of his ch taking care of his child 
after she's born and all of these things. And so it seemed like she's kind of this, this, this loving mother who is willing to go to extremes to protect her son because she has the ability to do so with witchcraft. And so I I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of ways that people could make arguments that my interpretation is wrong and that's fine, but that's just kind of how I saw it. And I think it's one of those things where if I were to watch it again, I probably would have a different interpretation of it. But um, that was my takeaway this time. Mm-hmm. And I do yeah. think the fox is her. Like, yeah, the fox is, is guiding him through this thing, trying to keep him safe because, again, I think it's further proof that she does really want to protect him because not only does she give him this belt, she also appears as this fox that's going to kind of be there for him throughout it all. Um, which, again, I guess you could maybe you know disprove everything that I just said by the fact that the fox when he gets close to the green eye is like actually wait no don't go turn back um yeah but then that kind of lends itself to what you were saying you know she has these goals and then eventually she changes her mind and it's like (laughs) oh wait a minute actually this is not a good plan (laughs) yeah yeah I'm curious what your interpretation of her sort of because in the the sort of um, alternate universe flash forward at the end of the film, when he's back and he's he's king and he has children and he's like doing all of these things that are you know very dishonorable, honestly, she doesn't speak at all. But my interpretation every time we see her during that whole section is that she's deeply disappointed in who he has become. Like she's doing, you know, she's performing her duty as the mother of the king and she's helping out with the kids and she's by his side and everything, but that she is, this is not who she wanted her son to become. And that's all like just me interpreting like the expression on Sarita Chaudhary's face. Um, But that's kind of how I was reading it is like this, um, like like you said, she wants her son to have honor. And so when he comes back, he has lost his honor by keeping that belt that was his, you know, his insurance against death, which can we even say that this is the same belt that she gave to him? We don't really know. Um, Does it matter? The the decisions that he made to get to that point of coming back are ones that left him without honor. And then this is something that is, yeah, disappointing to her. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to kind of touch on that because obviously I think that, at least in my opinion, is a huge aspect of the film that leaves big question marks at the end. Mm-hmm. And especially for me, after I watched it yeah. the first time, I was like, the next time I watch this movie, I will be paying attention to the mother because I need to understand <laughs> yeah. this. And again, it's a very specific adaptation change by David Lowry because like you said, the um, the witch Morgana Le Fay is in the poem but she is only mentioned at the end is like oh by the way all of this was from Morgana Le Fay and Morgana Le Fay is not Gawain's mother she has a completely different goal in setting all of this up so yeah that was all David Lowry yeah um so kind of transitioning forward a little bit there's one thing that I wanted to bring up that's also kind of just like a a theme of the movie that I thought would be fun to discuss. I'm not sure if you picked up on it. You probably did because you've seen this more than I have. And you're way more intellectual with watching things like this than I am. But I I noticed that kind of each of these different, after he leaves the castle and he begins his journey, 
you know, he he meets these people who rob him and then he gets to this house and he meets a ghost and then he meets the fox and then he gets, you know, he has all of these different kind of milestones that he reaches. And I noted that every single time he meets a new thing or a new person, even the the giants, like each time there seems to be some sort of transaction going on or some sort of exchange mm-hmm. of like, if you do this thing, what do I get in return? And whether that is um, Gawain asking someone that or them asking him that or someone responding and being like, why would you ask me that? I just found that to be really interesting that every single person or thing that he bumped into, there was some sort of either exchange of goods or attempt to exchange goods. And I just noted that. I don't really have any sort of interpretation about it at this point, but I wanted to bring it up. I'm not sure if you have one. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's so fascinating. I mean, I think it comes to this sort of larger theme throughout the film of what does it take to be a knight? You know, Gawain's status as a knight, not knight, knight in training, that sort of thing, because knighthood is what he wants. That seems to be his goal. But he's constantly, I mean, you know, he's telling people, I'm not a knight. I'm not a knight. I'm not a knight. They're always assuming that he's a knight or, you know, calling him out on his behaviors. Like, that's not what a knight would do. And he's like, well, I'm not a knight. And they're like, but that's not what a knight would do, you know? Um, I remember, this is like separate from my medieval fantasy literature class. I uh, I watched a series of lectures on Arthurian legends and the, the professor was talking about how in Arthurian legends, there's often this idea that the hero, because of the purity of his heart, he will be confronted with a series of choices where the correct choice is not necessarily explicit, but the hero will just instinctively know which one to make. And that's because mm-hmm. his heart is pure, because he is a true mm-hmm. knight. He has the chivalry. He has the honor. And Gawain, it's like, he does not know what the right thing to do is. <laughs> he is constantly at every turn making the wrong choice. He will usually eventually stumble toward the right choice, but only after someone else calls him out on it. You know, he's like, he gets directions from the guy. He doesn't tip him at all. The guy's like, aren't you going to tip me? And he's like, fine. And then he gives him a little coin, which is the wrong choice. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll that give guy you. Off. He's like, I'll give you many thanks. <laughs> yeah, you have my thanks. What more do you need? Can I just mm-hmm. say, yeah, please. Can, can I just say how, um, so I want to touch on a little bit. I feel like the, the whole sequence with Barry Keegan and, and his kind of gang of thugs, I, I feel like that sequence in particular is pretty self-explanatory. So I don't think we really need to dive deeply into it. But I just wanted to shout out like Barry Keegan being typecast is just like a goofy <laughs> yeah. weirdo cycle. A little Weasley guy. <laughs> Which he does yeah. so well. Every time he does it so well. And I think like, I don't know, sometimes I see actors being typecast and I can tell that they're kind of frustrated that this is these are the roles they keep getting. But I feel like Barry Keegan loves it. He's like, yes, give me more. <laughs> Lead into it. Um, I know. I can't wait till the day I he's to inevitably point cast out, in some kind of like rom-com or something. And it's like, oh, I gosh, no. I can't even picture it. I don't think he would take it. That would be super weird. Um, but I wanted to point out one thing that I noticed, which this is like, I, I don't know. I feel like this is super weird film nerd about me slash person who works in the industry and has to pay attention to things like this for their literal job. 
I loved the addition of his character. I, I don't remember his name. What's his name? Uh, what is the his Barry name? Keegan character? You? Oh, just he's just yeah. scavenger. Yeah. He's called scavenger. Um, but there is this addition of his boots. One of them is on, and the other one he's only like half wearing it, and so the base of the shoe is like sticking out to the side because his foot isn't in it. And so I was like, that's such a cool detail of this guy who's wearing these like dirty boots, trudging through this mud. And one of them is only halfway on. I just I just thought that was a really cool detail because you know that there's some costume designer somewhere who had a very long meeting with David Lowry about how is he going to wear those shoes. And that's a decision that they made for that character in that setting. And I just thought that was super cool. I was like, ah, I clocked it. I saw it. Super cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's so cool. I did not even men- like notice that consciously. But, you know. I mean, it, it's just such a part of like who his character is. It, it fits so well. That's amazing. Yeah, it, it was a fun realization for me. I was like, awesome. I'm good at my job. Also be hopefully this means I'll be a good director because I notice things like that because I care about things like that. Um, but anyway, so yeah, moving forward a little bit, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we've already talked about the beauty of like the wide shots and everything. So I'm not going to keep just going into the trees, the shots of the trees, the wide shots, the, oh, the, like, I can't, you know, we've got some handheld going on here. Like, it's just, you know, we've got fog. Like, there's so much. I love it. Um, but for the sake of brevity, we're not going to keep fawning over the cinematography. Um, but I, I wanted to get your interpretation of the 360 camera and he's a skeleton and then he is flesh again I wanted to get your thoughts on that sure part of me just feels like it's David Lowry being like this would be cool (laughs) (laughs) and not actually have a meaning but I don't know well okay so (laughs) I feel like this goes back to a larger theme that I was like really picking up on this uh, particular watch which is this idea of people having narratives and to know the narrative to know the story of a person is to know the person (laughs) kind of trying to make this connect but like early on in the film you know when Arthur I think that Tyrion would agree with you (laughs) what's better than the one with the best stories the one best script to lead us (laughs) um I hate but like anyway sorry continue (laughs) um when um uh Arthur sits down with Gawain he's like I know all the stories of all the knights who are here today I don't know who you are. Tell me a story of yourself so that I can know you, which I think is so fascinating. And um, so just like this idea of like living, what does your, what is the shape of your narrative, your personal narrative? And the reason that I was connecting that to that particular shot is because I feel like this is Gawain sort of, as he's going through this film, he's sort of narrativizing his own story. Like, who am I going to become? I really want to become like one of these knights who has these epic tales that is told about them. But I keep making wrong turns and I keep making wrong decisions. And now he's at this moment where he's like, well, I've failed. The narrative of my life is being left in the middle of a forest as a skeleton that will be uncovered by someone walking by in a hundred years and no one ever knowing exactly what happened or who I am. Like it's him sort of seeing this vision for, oh, my life just ends here. My story ends here. And then, but then that 
gives him the impetus to try and make another story to keep going and to to try another way um so yeah i just read that in a very sort of subjective we're getting a glimpse inside gawain's mind as he's momentarily giving up and thinking this is the end of my tale but then he makes the decision no i'm gonna keep going i feel like this movie dives into a question that's even more abstract than what is the meaning of life i feel like this movie just asks what is life because there's so much of we're meeting people that are ghosts, but are they ghosts? And like, does it matter? Because they're real to him. So that makes it, but are they real to him? Because he's questioning it. And, you know, we have his bones on the ground and then he meets this, this ghost lady who's skull is under the the under this like pond and he grabs it and you know I just there's so much in this movie that I feel like is just asking the question what even is life and I think that it's a very very abstract question (laughs) well Um, this idea of like living on through the tales that are told about you after life or living on through the conception of honor that people have ascribed to you is a way of extending your life beyond you know your physical carnate time on earth i also like this paradox though of you know searching for so much meaning in life and and that's the purpose but then having other moments where it's like this doesn't like none of this matters. And that just like brings me to that quote of when he, when he meets that, I don't know her name is probably just like spirit or something, but when he meets the ghost lady and he asks her, are you a spirit? And she just responds like, what's the difference? Like, what's the difference? I just need my head. And I don't know. There's just this incredible contradiction slash not contradiction, but pair paradox of these two ideas of, searching for meaning in life whether that's honor whether that's family whether that's staying alive or whatever it might be but then we have these moments where it's like none of this matters anyway like just just like I don't know embrace what's happening right now like it's as simple as this just hand me my head like don't think more about it like like where is that gonna get you it's not gonna get you anywhere just give me my head you know (laughs) um so yeah I just think that's a really cool kind of two sides of the same coin that we have represented in this movie. Um, Yeah. yeah. Also speaking of that character, I remember the first time I watched this movie, I flipped out. I watched this with two friends when I was in Spain and two of us flipped out when she just like started gliding forward towards him. (laughs) We were like, ah, (laughs) what's happening? (laughs) Because first she's like creepily waking him up while he's sleeping in her bed. And then she's like floating. (laughs) I was prepared for it this time. So it didn't impact me as much. But I remember the first time I was like, oh, no, if this turns into a horror movie, I don't know if I can handle this. (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's it's incredibly eerie. And I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And her performance is so good. The way she's just so like kind of she has this sort of innocence to her and she but she's so calm and so unknowing and so I don't know unflappable but she also gets affected by the way you know the way when he like she asks him to get her head and he's like what will you give what will you give me in return and she's like mm-hmm. why would why you would ask you ask me that? me that and it's just such a genuine question of like 
are you not a person of honor? Like, what mm-hmm. is wrong with you? Why wouldn't you just write this wrong? Get me my head, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find, I don't know. I find Gawain to be a really interesting character because I feel like at the start of this movie, it, it tries to be like, hey, look at this, you know, young guy who's just sleeping around and drinking all the time and life is fun and he's kind of a joke. But then it's like, oh, wait, but he actually wants to have honor and he wants to, like, make his uncle proud. And then we have these moments where it's like, is he just, you know, once he leaves the castle, it's like, is he just pretending to be honorable, but he's actually, like, doesn't care? Then there's other moments where it's like, oh, no, he actually seems like an honorable guy who really respects this person that he's talking to. And then there's other moments where it's like, I think you're just stupid and you don't know what to say in this moment. And you've heard other people (laughs) ask you for things in exchange. And so you think that, like... That's just how you're supposed to communicate with people because that's how people like, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, yeah there, there's just so much. Well, there's, that- there's just so much going on with his character. And I'm shocked that we've gotten to this point in the episode and we have not talked about Dev Patel's performance. <laughs> like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like what? I, I It's just he. I mean, he he the is the whole movie hangs on him. You know, he is so so good and I believe him as this character in so many ways and I feel like with a lesser actor this movie would have been a complete joke like it would have just been like what okay like this weird guy is walking around having these visions and asking stupid questions you know but he just has so much sincerity in portraying this character he just feels so real and you see him confident, you see him scared, you see him trying to be strong when he's not, you see him regretting, you see him like having resolve at the end of this movie. Like there's just so many, this character is so dynamic and he is exceptional in every single aspect of how he portrays this character. And I think, I mean, can, like, can we just keep giving him lead roles? <laughs> like, I mean, he was he was so good in um, Wes Anderson's recent short film. I forget what it's called. Something, something, Mr. Sugar. I don't remember. Um, he was absolutely incredible in that movie. Um, but every single time I see him, I'm like, I want more Dev Patel. Can we have more movies with Dev Patel? Please and thank you. <laughs> I know. Every time I see the James Bond rumors for him, I'm like, no, stop it. I want him in like interesting roles that are not... Yes. I'm not that I don't like James Bond movies, but like, no. He needs, Him as he James needs, Bond would more. be super weird. Yeah. I mean, I believe he could pull it off, but that's just strange mm-hmm. casting. Yeah. The With the Gawain character, there's a line, I think it's early on when he's hanging out with Essel. I can't remember exactly where it is, but she's just like, you know, she's sort of joking about how like, oh, you're going to be a great knight or you have this grand future or whatever. And he just keeps, he's like, I've got time. I've got time. You know, and I think that's so key to his character is this idea of someone who is finds himself kind of frozen by the grandeur of this legacy that he's expected to live up to. And so he just has been he's like, I, I'll grow up, I'll be I'll have honor, I'll be a great knight, but not now. Like I later, mm-hmm. later, at some point in the future. And he's just never ready to meet it. And, um, you know, he's never put in the work, basically, of learning how to be honorable. And so this movie is finally putting him in this position of, oh, now you actually do need to, like, be honorable. You do need to go out and do these things. And it's so, um, I mean, again, with this idea of, like, a knight should just know, a proper, true chivalric knight should just know what the right thing to do is. 
we kind of slid past it, but the when the Green Knight comes in and lays down his challenge and he's like, this is a game, you know, here's how it works. I they, You strike a blow on me, I'll strike a blow on you a year later and everything. And Gawain volunteers. You really get the sense of like, he only volunteers because of this conversation he's just had with Arthur, kind of realizing the position that he's in and being like, oh, crap, I need to do something that's important. And he has no idea what he just got himself into. And Arthur's like, are you sure you know what you're doing? And he's like, yeah, I think so. (laughs) And he just makes the most boneheaded move possible, which is because of his how intimidated he is and the feeling that he needs to, like, do something impressive and strong. He just goes straight for chopping off the knight's head. The knight and never points. No point said you need to chop off my head. He just said, land a blow on me. Like, could have been a little nick. Well, and then all of this I mean, could have been avoided. bend over and hold his head out. That's basically saying, like, I'm in the position for you to behead He's me. like, yeah. So He's I would like, put I'm... all of that on Gawain. Like, who, <laughs> who responds to someone who's like, like, give me a blow and bends over like that and is like, okay, I'll just, ta- like, I don't know. Yeah, I think this the is Green Knight's asking like, for it. This is the thing where it's like, if you are a wise person who had you know, who understood the terms of the game that you were entering into and understood the terms of honor, you would realize whatever I dish out is going to be dished back on me in some way. And so therefore, I should keep that in mind. But Gawain does not. He's just like, all right, let's go for the biggest move possible. And it's understandable in the circumstances. But, you know, it's also a testament. You know, it shows his immaturity at that point um, to make this move and not realize you are a lot more harsh with him than I am because I do think that he is an honorable man from the beginning. Like I, I I feel like he is an honorable person. He just feels insecure about it because he's always been like the second choice to someone else. Those are the vibes that he gives me that like he's been training for this Mm -hmm. and wanting this his whole life. But because he's always been the second in line, he's had to kind of make himself smaller. And so when he's given the opportunity he really steps up and and I, I do think he's a lot of times aware of the choices that he's making and he does speak very eloquently in certain moments where he does seem to really know what he's doing and how that's going to affect people and how he's presenting and whether he's carrying himself with honor. He doesn't, I don't know, he doesn't seem like, I don't see him the way that yeah. you see him. I see him as like a yeah. completely capable, honorable person who has completed his training and knows how to do it, but just has hasn't had the opportunity to really like put that on display. And so he's kind of testing the waters of like, how far can I go? Like, I don't know. But interesting. Yeah, yeah. I think I wonder if we're, where we differ on Gawain is I think in this universe, honor is not something that you just intrinsically have. It's something that you have to learn and build. And so I think Gawain the whole way through has the capacity for honor. And we certainly see at certain moments that he he knows the steps and he can bring that out in himself. But he has deliberately put off really practicing what it means to live as an honorable person. And so this movie is his journey into fully learning what that means, fully realizing what it means to be a knight, even to the the extent of the sacrifice of potential life for the sake of, of fully obtaining your honor. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for the sake of moving on in our journey, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we got to keep rolling oh, through gosh. here. Um, but I will oh, say, 
we are at the halfway point because this movie has an interlude and I am here for it because can I just say this movie is just over just over two hours and Lowry was like I feel the need for there to be an interlude which I think is great because I could stop it I went to the bathroom I came back but then there's movies that are four hours long and they don't have any I'm like if a two-hour movie can have an interlude, y'all should be having interludes left and right. Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> um, so I love that choice. I'm here for it. Um, this movie flies by, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's where we get to kind of people's differing interpretations as the movie goes on. Because we have Gawain. We see him eating mushrooms. And... I mean, the movie's kind of been fantastical and weird up till this point, but from this point forward, it's really fucking weird. <laughs> like, this is this is when he starts seeing <laughs> giants. This is when the world starts turning upside down. This is when he meets an entire ghost castle with fake people in it. Like, there's just, I don't know. And so for me, I I, I think for me watching it this second time around, I don't think it diminishes the quality of the movie or the depths of the themes that it's trying to get at. But I do think he's tripping balls for the last portion of this movie, because speaking as someone who like, I've never done shrooms. I know people who have it. It can be a very like, like I know people that have gone to centers and had like guided mushroom trips and they can be very profound and like open up aspects of your brain and aspects of your heart and like traumas from your past that you need to work through, but you've like shoved down really far and you can really touch on profound emotions and have these realizations that change your outlook on life. And so I do think the last half of this movie he's tripping on mushrooms for the most part. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, And I think, I don't know, even the way that some of the color correction works, like after he has those mushrooms, like the way the lighting works is very like the, it, it very much so captures what I've heard about the colors and like the shape shifting of what's around you when you are high on shrooms. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That was definitely my interpretation the second time around of like, I'm pretty sure he's high out of his mind, but like, it doesn't matter because I I, I don't know. But yeah. So your argument is even when he gets to the castle, he's still high? No, not by that point. I think by oh, that okay. point, he's so So it's just up, when he sees the I- giants that he's high. Oh, no, it's it's everything after that, just up until... Oh, sorry, I thought you meant the Green Castle. Sorry, there's two different... Or the Green yeah, Chapel, wait, sorry. The Green, the green Chapel. Chapel, yeah. Sorry, I, I think at what point until, do you think he's no longer high, is my question. Up until the Green Chapel. I think everything up until that point, he's high out of his mind. But... Um, okay. I strongly disagree, yeah. but... Um, That's fine. Intrigued, yeah. I, I ultimately <laughs> like don't really think it matters, because no, either really. way, he's seeing things that aren't there. So, like... Well, Okay, that's that would be okay. That's an interesting sort of argument to make. Is he seeing things that aren't? Who there? do you think he's seeing that's there in the no, castle? Like you mean the Joel there. Edgerton character, the Alicia yeah. Vikander character? You he, don't think they're there? He literally no. He literally says to him when he leaves, he's like, "When you come back this way, we won't be here. Like they're gonna be like, well, they don't exist. They're gonna be gone." Well, he said earlier that they're going on a trip, like. A physical trip is what he meant. They're not real. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, the fact that they have, 
like an old lady with braids and like a cloth covering her eyes and she's walking around like a like a weird person it's very very dreamlike i i don't well, see yeah how i that mean the whole be. movie's dreamlike <laughs> well i know that's what i'm saying like so much yeah. of this movie is not I, I think so much of this movie is not even real like this yeah. could all be a, a dream like he falls asleep and he wakes up like none of this is real to me so um mm, i just okay. think that the first part is kind of his imagination and then he takes shrooms and it goes to a whole other <laughs> level. Um, All right. But yeah, I, I really don't see most of this being real at all. Um, but that's just my own interpretation. And I, again, I ultimately don't think that it matters because I think in a lot of ways it is still asking the same questions, whether it's real or not, it's real to him and that's what's important. Um, but yeah. Speaking of giants, though, I love the giants. They're super cool. They're so cool. Where Such are they a going? Nice addition. <laughs> I don't know. The fact that oh. he's like, can you please like take me with you so I don't have to walk all this way? And they try to communicate with him and they just they're too big. They can't. He can't. understand. Well, it looks saying. like one of them tries to hurt him, which is when the fox comes up and speaks to them and is like, no, leave him alone. Yeah. Well, that's the question is, was it going to hurt him? Was it going to just like poke at him because he doesn't know what he is and probably hurt him because of that like are they malicious are they not malicious? like i don't know you don't know i don't know i mean they thing. seem to be looking at him with disdain like when they're all just kind of standing there looking at him like y'all aren't happy that he's on your turf like i don't know <laughs> but um you guys clearly don't want him to be there <laughs> um but yeah okay so then we have these beautiful shots of the camera turning upside down and and I also forgot to mention the shot earlier where he does dive to the bottom of the pool to grab the skull and you know he dives into this pond that all of a sudden is like gorgeous you know hundreds and hundreds of feet Mm -hmm. deep like I have no idea how deep it is um but yeah this is when the camera really starts I mean the camera's been amazing since the beginning but um yeah anyway so okay so this brings us to the point when he gets to the castle also geneva when he gets to the castle after eating these mushrooms when joel egerton's character greets him the first time when he stumbles through the door he's literally a bear like he he, he's a bear (laughs) so i'm like if that isn't tripping on shrooms i don't know what is like a bear greeting you like hello welcome good sir who are you and then he just pass out on the ground um but that actually I don't know what this says about me but I think that is probably my favorite acting moment for Dev Patel when he walks in and just like collapses on the floor and the specific angle that the camera has and his head kind of looking I don't know it's just like the whole I'm gonna use a film snobby word but like the whole mise-en-scene of that shot when he comes in and falls to the ground I think is so beautiful to me for some reason and the fact that he's the center of it and him having this like I'm so exhausted physically mentally emotionally like I'm hungry all I had to eat was mushrooms and now I'm like out of my mind which I puked on I completely puked (laughs) on yeah (laughs) So now I'm even more malnourished because I puked up everything that I had in my system. Also, the um, the shot when he's sleeping in the bed with the cur- the blue curtains oh, around him and we're looking down from the top and the bed is so like great. 20 feet tall. It's gorgeous. It is so, so beautiful. I I love it so much. Yes, that that is great. 
Um, yeah, that's too funny because in my notes, I literally wrote down the shot of him through the front door of the castle, then greeted by a bear, then laying in the blue curtain room. <laughs> like, these are the types of notes I take. It's fun. Um, okay, so then he gets to the castle and he wakes up. I just want to have a shout out for um, Alicia Vikander's uh, dress in this, her blue. I, I ugh, it's. It's incredible. Like, I was watching this and I was like, I want to dress up like that for Halloween. That would be so great. The costume design in general in this movie is so good because it's like, it's not going for accurate medieval, but it's this very fantastical, almost sci-fi structured version of medieval that is so beautiful and the the solid colors and the way they interact with him, the gold yellow of um, Gawain's scarf. yeah, the, the deep blue of her dress. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah. So then we're kind of introduced to, she says she wants to paint his portrait. And he's like, I've already had my portrait painted. And she's like, not by me. And he's like, mm, okay. Um, I find it to be Sorry. very interesting when he finally starts kind of entering into their world a, little, world a little bit more. And he walks into the room for her to do the portrait. She starts closing the windows, which is kind of mm-hmm. signifying like, I don't know your interpretation of this, but my interpretation is like, this is meant to be, because this is his final step, basically, before getting to the Green Chapel. And Mm -hmm. so my perspective is that this is supposed to be the final test of like, all of the things that you love are here. You can eat here. You have a beautifully stunning bed here. <laughs> like the <laughs> the woman that you love, she is here. You could be with her here. You can have your portrait made here and have it put up on the wall. Like this is this is everything that you want it to be. And so the fact that she's closing the windows is very much so like come stay inside and never leave, you know? Um, and I thought that that was a, an interesting, just like addition to detail that I appreciated. Yeah. 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 What's your, what are your thoughts in general about, I mean, we haven't really talked about the character of Essel Mm -hmm. too, but you know, Essel and then the decision to cast the same actress for Essel and the lady of this manor house. Um, I mean, we, we've passed a lot of her scenes already, but just thoughts on Essel in general. Um, I mean, I don't have a lot of thoughts about her because to me it kind of seems like the typical situation of like this is a lord and he falls in love with a whore and she you know they want to be together but he can't because honor and you know it's just kind of like there isn't anything particularly intriguing to me there other than like it's another layer to him and his life and like the the decisions that he has to make between one thing or another um, you know, she's got, she has this like great quote earlier on that, um, I don't think I've mentioned yet, but she says to him when he's kind of talking about leaving or whatever, and she says to him, this is how silly men perish. And then he responds, this is how brave men become grand. And I think that that's just like really interesting, which kind of lends itself to her thinking that like, I don't care if you're grand or not. It's just like, don't <laughs> yeah because she has that line after that like why be great why do, why not just be good you know and like so much of the the lack of his honor is shown in that latter half of the movie and how he treats Essel you know him sort of using her and discarding her as an evidence of his his lack of honor mm-hmm. yeah and and like I said I think the fact that you know they have this lady at the castle look 
just like her I think it's meant to be like this is a temptation for you to stay here and not leave because if you stay here you could be with her amongst all of these other things which I think is super interesting when you add the layer to that of like they have this sex scene with this green cloth slash belt thing that he got from his mom where she's like she's like trying to take it off and he's like no no I like I want it I want it and it's like this this twisted like sexual fantasy slash relationship with where you're not really entirely sure at least for me until you see kind of the 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 belt afterwards you're not really aware of the fact that this is about a, a belt it seems kind of like a sexual thing but then afterwards it's like oh this is about the the belt like that's interesting and so it's just kind of it shows this other aspect of him where he is clinging to safety and even though he wants to be honorable there is this huge part of him that's like but I kind of really want to stay here because here feels safe and I know that what's next is like scary and um I just think the concept of him having sex with safety is really interesting um <laughs> but yeah yeah well I mean so much of the themes of the great the the green knight both the original poem and in this movie is this question of how do you reckon with the fact that your time on earth is limited and in the the whole conceit of the story is that there's this artificial circumstance that happens that at least seemingly um makes the endpoint of his life very clear and this idea that going to death like welcoming death is the honorable thing to do or welcoming at least the possibility of death is the honorable thing to do the dishonorable thing is to run away from it and so the the girdle coming back and like you know like she says like if you wear this you won't be struck down to take it then becomes this way of basically cheating you know <laughs> in this game that he has set up with the green knight to take this girdle and and to wear it is this um way of getting around the rules that have been explicitly established and so the the way that this interaction between the two of them where she's you can't really tell exactly what's going on i mean my interpretation she's like basically handing it over to him but also giving him a hand job at the same time and so it's like these two things then oh, become inextricably linked his like um you know his his lustiness his you know down uh, down to earthness it sounds like in a positive way but like the way that he lives by his carnal pleasures you know from the start of the movie it's you know which is a sign of his kind of inability to his arrested development his unwillingness to take on the mantle of knighthood that becomes linked then with his fear of death and his uh unwillingness to kind of meet the possibility of death and um yeah that's kind of how i interpreted that scene which i find really fascinating mm. i totally don't see them having actual sex in any way shape or form i literally think he's having sex with the concept of safety like she's just taunting him and ta talking him about this thing and he literally like has an erection because of safety like 
he's having sex with safety, which I think is just fascinating. You don't to think me. she's like touching him in any way? No, not at all. I, which huh, is why I, mean, I love it so much because it's twisted and interesting. weird. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and also I just wanted to mention that at the end of, because um, obviously, like, while you know while this sexual encounter is going on regardless of how you want to define what's happening you know she's basically saying like you want it and then he's saying I want it I want it I want it and then after he ejaculates she basically says to him she says you are no knight which I thought was really interesting that that's kind of like she's been yes again which again I think is her like taunting him Mm -hmm. like showing him all the different ways that he falls short in one go Mm -hmm. totally um so yeah, and I just wanted to mention real quick, because after this, we're going to leave the castle. Um, I just want to read real quick, because I think it would be faster for me to read it than to play the scene. But um, her speech about the difference between the colors green and red that happens, I just want to like read mm-hmm. it real quick. So uh, she says, why is he green, do you think? And then Gawain says, the knight. And she says, yes. And then Gawain says, was he born that way? And then Jolgerson says, perhaps it is the color of his blood when he blushes. And then she says, but why green? Why not blue or red? And Gawain says, because he is not of this earth. And she says, but green is the color of earth, of living things, of life. And then Gawain says, and of rot. And then she says, yes. And then she goes on, we deck our halls with it and dye our linens. But should it come creeping up the cobbles, we scrub it out fast as we can. When it blooms beneath our skin, we bleed it out. And when we together all find that our reach has exceeded our grasp, we cut it down. We stamp it out. We spread ourselves atop it and smother it beneath our bellies, but it comes back. It does not dally, nor does it wait to plot or conspire. Pull it out by the roots one day and then next. There it is, creeping in around the edges. Whilst we're off looking for red, in comes green. Red is the color of lust, but green is what lust leaves behind in heart, in womb. Green is what is left when ardor fades, when passion dies, when we die too. When you go, your footprints will fill with grass. Moss shall cover your tombstone, and as the sun rises, green shall spread over all, in all its shades and hues. This verdigree will overtake your swords and your coins and your battlements, and try as you might, all you hold will succumb to it. Your skin, your bones, your virtue." Uh, I think it would take a whole other hour to dive into oh everything that's going on there, but oh my gosh, I just would be remiss if I didn't at least read it. Um, Geneva, I hope this is okay, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to kind of move on from it for the sake of time. But I just wanted sure. to mention it. Yeah, I, I I don't <laughs> even know how to get into it's, <laughs> unpacking it's, yeah. all of that. Like we could do a whole episode on just breaking that down. Um, but. Yeah. But I think it kind of touches on a lot of the themes that we've already been talking about in terms of like legacy and how you're remembered and, you know, life and nature and all of those things. Um, mm-hmm. And kind of like the the ecclesiastics perspective of like there's nothing new under the sun sort of thing. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, I just wanted to read that. But moving on. Um, so then he eventually does leave the cat. Oh, I wanted to ask you actually, do you have any interpretation on the yes. grandma? Because I'm just like, she's just a creepy lady who's here to tell us that none of this is real. But I don't know if you have an actual interpretation on 
who or why she exists. Uh, yeah, because in the original poem, that character exists, but she is implied to be Morgan Le Fay, uh, who obviously is a completely different character in the movie. Um, so I've kind of gone back and forth between like, she's a sort of stand in like avatar for the mother at this point versus like, she's a sort of walking reminder of that kind of idea of the cycles of youth and life and bloom versus decay where, um, the lady is the embodiment of, you know, how beauty and youth and freshness and then the lady is sort of the reminder of death and mortality and decay you know this is kind of what we turn into um as we age that sort of thing Mm -hmm. yeah i yeah completely valid i just for me was like i don't i don't have any thoughts on this other than like it's a weird person to tell us that none of this is real um she feels very david lynchian to me um Mm. yeah but yeah, my favorite is of- when when uh, the lady leaves after their strange sexual encounter involving the the green girdle, and then he just turns around and she's just staring, standing there, and he's like, "What?" Yep, there's some weird shenanigans going on here. Um, yep, but yeah, so then he then he leaves the castle, um, and I think we've already kind of touched a little bit on the hunting thing. I don't really want to spend too much further time on it. Um, but so he leaves the castle and he has this conversation with the Lord who's kind of like, are you sure? Because once, once you leave, like, we're not going to be here when you come back. I have food for you. Like you could stay here. I could share, like you could share in this bounty with us. And he's like, no, I must go honor. And also your daughter just terrified me and your mother too. Like they're weird and I'm getting out of your wife, Um, (laughs) your wife. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, this is weird. Um, so then he continues on his way and the fox basically, oh, who the Lord returns to him. Apparently he found the fox and trapped him in a bag and was like, here, I will return your fox to you. Um, (laughs) thanks. Um, but so he basically reaches this river, which is like the threshold to entering into the, the green, um, the green, what is it? Green cathedral? The green chapel. The green chapel. Which by the way, the scavenger way back at the beginning told him it was by a stream feel like he was telling the truth yeah yeah maybe it wasn't that far after all and because he was tripping balls it felt like he had to journey a lot farther than he actually did um so interesting um but anyway so then this the fox kind of turns on him and gives him this speech that basically is like you don't have to do this you can turn around you can go home like what is ahead of you is maybe not what you're expecting like all of these things and he's like, no, but I must go. And the fox is like, all right, your funeral. <laughs> um, so then he enters the the green uh, the green chapel, which when he enters, I want that poster on my yes. wall. You, you know which shot I'm talking yes, about? Yes, I know exactly what shot you were like. Oh, I could yes. not agree more. I want that poster on my wall and I legitimately might buy that poster and put it on my wall. Um, it's absolutely beautiful. The way that this particular chapel is designed, it's like overgrown with nature and vines and grass. And, and yet there's this incredible yellow light coming through and, and there's this little, like little waterfall brook thing. It just feels very alive, which, because Mm -hmm. that like, 
the the sound making mixing is so great because you hear the river and you hear the wind and leaves and it's just it's so great um so basically we have this I love this sequence where he's just kind of sitting there waiting for Christmas to come. <laughs> like he's literally just sitting there and he's like, Oh, I'm a day early. I got to just camp Christmas. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I love that. But then eventually the green knight does wake up and he's like, all right, are you ready? And he's like, uh, I think so. And the green knight tries to, you know, strike his blow several times. And, uh, Gawain is like, actually, no, I'm not down for this. I'm going to leave. And then we get this, um, which I feel like the first time I saw this movie, I didn't think this was real. I think I I had an idea that he Mm -hmm. was like imagining a future. Um, But he leaves and then we have this really long sequence that I really want to go back and watch again because I was just taken aback. But this really long sequence kind of showing him of when he leaves this place, having not followed through on the commitment he made to the Green Knight, we see his entire future of he goes back. He he has a child with um, what's her name? Uh, With Essel. Yes, he has he has a child with Essel, but then she like the kid can't stay with her because she is a prostitute and he can't be with her because of that. And so. He takes the, the way child. he like he gets... ca- callously Ugh. dumps coins on her bloody bedclothes as he takes the child away. It's horrifying. It's awful. Yeah. Um. So, and the mother's there when that happens, which is interesting. Um. Then we get like introduced to his wife, who has the most stunning wedding dress I've ever seen yeah. in my entire life. But it's life. also. I think, which I think is, I don't know what it means, but I think it's explicit. She also looks very similar to St. Winifred, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the spirit that he met. Yes, absolutely. I, I thought it was intentional, but maybe not. Um, so yeah, then we have kind of things happen very quickly. We kind of, and then eventually we just basically yeah, see Yeah, so that- he, be- he becomes king because um, the King Arthur dies. But like his country is plagued by war and his son, he, you know, his son with Essel is killed in the war and the people turn against him. And it's just like going from bad to worse. Yeah. So we see him kind of on a battlefield, which kind of hints that, you know, he's a king who at least like fights with his soldiers on the battlefield. But I think it becomes clear that by the time he returns that their kingdom has fallen. Like they're waiting for people to storm through the doors and basically like kill them. Yeah, very um, Game of Thrones. S- uh, I forget. Oh, that yes. Season two. <laughs> it's definitely season two. It is the Battle of Blackwater when Cersei is hiding underground with <laughs> with Marcella and uh, uh, Tommen. Marcella and Tommen. Uh, wow, I was too slow to say his name. I'm ashamed <laughs> of myself. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so um, so yeah, and then. I, I forget how that ends, though, Geneva. How do we transition back to oh, the gosh. chapel? What's yes, the final yes. shot Well, there? because it, it suddenly turns into... Um, have you read the short story, The Woman with the, the Black race, Lace Ribbon thing? Yeah, basically... I don't read short um, stories. As... <laughs> this was something I had to read in like middle school or something like that. It's like a creepy story that always stuck with me. A woman has a like a black... Lit, like ribbon around her neck and her husband keeps asking her why and finally one day she like takes it off and her head falls off um Ooh, but yeah basically cool. the the um 
enemies are about to break down the castle and as they do you know they finally burst in and he finally so throughout this entire montage we've seen he's always been wearing that green girdle around his waist he like he keeps it on during sex like he keeps it on at, at all to- times he can't so take finally, it off. as the enemies are overtaking him and about to kill him he takes it off and then his head falls right off. right 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 and Thank so it's this idea yeah that. that like this entire time he's been living only delaying the inevitable you know mm-hmm. or just like that 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 belt is the only thing keeping him alive. Like if he hadn't worn that, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of exactly. like, um, again, I'm just drawing so many connections to fantasy things, but it's kind of like how Bilbo, mm-hmm. like he's the, the ring, the power of the ring has kept him young for so long. And then once he takes it off, he like becomes his actual age. And it's like, Oh, if mm-hmm. you hadn't been wearing this thing, you would have aged naturally, or you would have died a lot sooner or whatever, you know, you might, you might see it mm-hmm. as so, um, this belt is just fascinating to me. Um, and I also forgot to mention that earlier when uh, when he first gets to the Green Chapel, we also have this uh, this sound mixing edition where uh, after the Green Knight wakes up, we, we have this whole concept of we keep hearing his heartbeats. It's like mm. they're fast and then they're slowing down and they're speeding up again, which I think is such a cool way to kind of put us in his shoes yet again. Um so yeah, after we have this whole flash forward basically showing him his entire future, which quite frankly seems rather depressing and not yeah. honorable <laughs> like he wanted, yep. um, we're back to the present day and he's with the Green Knight again in the chapel. And he kind of, he takes this moment where he's breathing deeply and he seems to become aware of if he leaves this place, going back on his word of what he said he would do, he will not like his life will be basically like a failure and um so he becomes very uh just resolved in his decision and he asks for a moment he's like just give me a sec and then he finally says okay and he he removes the belt too Mm -hmm. and he says now I'm ready I'm ready now and then the green knight kind of crouches down and looks at him and he goes like the quote I said at the beginning of the movie Uh, I'm not going to say it in the voice again, but mm-hmm. but he says, well done, my brave knight. Now off with your head. Yeah. And then and he like, doesn't he sort of trace the the line of the where the axe mm-hmm. would go along his neck? It's like, you know, the sort of when oh, you're I playing with a kid like, and you're like, oh, I thought he lovingly stroked his cheek. But I think I because I could have sworn that he sort of traces takeaways. along his yeah. Well, either way, I, I still read it as an act of sort of loving, gentle, like kind of uh, what's the word? Like almost playful, you know, and the Green Knight smiles at that point, which is, I think, so crucial. You know, he smiles and then we cut to the Green Knight, you know, title card, end of movie. Tatum's looking it up. I'm determined to be right. <laughs> Yeah, no, he's lovingly rubbing his cheek. He's not. It's like a caress of his cheek. Uh, I'm watching it too. Hang on. He caresses his cheek. Uh-huh. And then, now my brave knight. Now. And then he draws the line. Okay, so he does both. He does both. Okay, so we're both right. 
We're both um, right. I was yeah. like, I definitely kind know of that he lovingly strokes his cheek. Like, yes. I just watched it. <laughs> and I definitely knew he drew a line along his neck. <laughs> um. Okay. But yeah, so right. his final oh. line is, well done, my brave knight. Now off with your head. And then, yeah. you know, we kind of hear the sound of him standing up a little bit. Because the beautiful sound of whenever this green knight moves, I love it so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the film does not cut to black. The film immediately cuts to like a, a green tree stump and it says the green knight on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just to kind beautiful of close out, black. I just want to mention that um, there is a post credits sequence in this movie that I was not aware of until I watched mm-hmm. it this time around. And uh, it's, it's, basically shows this little girl sitting in a castle and she picks up this crown that um that Gawain basically would be wearing and she puts it on her head um and so I just want to uh note something that's another you know quote straight from Wikipedia but it says the after credit scene showing a young girl putting on a crown has been seen as a tease of an alternate life that Gawain leads as King of Camelot with his daughter, possibly even mothered by Essel, a sign of the happiness he found. I don't remember if that's a quote from Lowry himself, um, but regardless, it's a thing that was in my research. So, um, yeah, we're at two hours and yeah. five minutes. Oh, Anything man. else you need to say about this movie? <laughs> I know we kind of like there quickly so... glossed over yeah. the end and there's so much happening in that sequence, mm-hmm. but. Yeah. You know, yeah. There are truly so many other things that I want to say, and so many moments, and so many, you know, plot points and themes and characters and stuff that I want to get into, but we truly, this is such a layered well, movie. Do, we do cannot a, get into it all. Well, do do a speed round. Um, do a speed round. Just well, say all the different I don't points. Have, real I don't quick. really have like. Speed round. No, no, no expansion on any of them. Just say them real quick. I, I, I honestly. <laughs> I don't think I could without going through like the the plot all over again. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Why I was did just you stop me while we were going through it. We no, 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 it's not like <laughs> it's not like I have a list of like here are ten things that we could go through. I'm just saying that if we spent if we had like ten hours to go into this movie, we could film it. You know, <laughs> um, gotcha. I was tracking this watch the the way that things just in the plot progression the way that um you know his first moment his first adventure out of the castle he loses his horse he loses his the the girdle that his mother gave him and he loses the axe that he's supposed to bring to the green knight and so then tracking throughout the rest of the film he might lose something else too i can't really remember but the way that those things are returned to him i think is really interesting because the axe is returned first and it's very explicitly like it's after he retrieves St. Winifred's head, and it's so it's this sort of magical endorsement of his actions, this magical encouragement for him to keep going. And I think he's at that point told Winifred, like, I'm trying to go home. <laughs> like, he's given up, but the universe is mm-hmm. kind of telling him, no, 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 we're going to give you what you need. You need to keep going. But then mm-hmm. when the girdle is returned, it's returned in this much more ambiguous way of is this the same girdle that his mother gave him, which is supposed to protect him? Or is this some sort of enchantment temptation that is actually deflecting him from his goal? And you know, I think it, it kind could of be ties both. Into that. And it ties into that, like that question of, you know, the fox is the fox, the embodiment of his mother who is caring for him and protecting him and wanting to encourage him on his goal. Well, all of a sudden the fox turn against his 
his goal. It says, no, 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 go home. <laughs> you know, don't complete your mission. So, um, and then the horse only returns to him um, in the alternate universe vision. Like he he leaves the Green Knight and he finds the horse there. It sort of seems to be this sort of magical endorsement of him just leaving and going home. But then everything that comes after that makes it seem like that was not the right choice. So, yeah, I was just kind of fascinated tracking all of those things these, this time around. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I think that's that's a great, great note to address for sure. Okay, um, so we are going to move forward a little bit here so we can uh, close out. So um, let's do it. Yeah, this movie basically was nominated for and won zero awards. I looked at IMDb <sighs> and I was like, it wasn't nominated for anything, not even like any festivals or like it, it received zero awards recognition, yeah. which like, I mean, that's to- why... That's why in the beginning of this episode, when I introduced the film, I called it a cult movie because yeah. it is really something where a lot of people haven't seen it. Um, but the people who have very devoutly love mm-hmm. this movie. Um, and there's some people who just don't get it. They're like, it's not for me. But the people who do get it, it's like a very devout following. Um yeah. But yeah, this movie got very little recognition in terms of awards. But that being said, it was a big critic critical hit. Um, it has an 85 on Metacritic and an 89 on Rotten Tomatoes, which, in my opinion, it should be higher. But should be higher. I mean, it's still pretty high, so I yeah. guess it's fine. Um, but yeah, this so this movie I, also came out like, I mean, it came out in 2021, so I think its release was also probably messed up by the like the lingering yeah. effects of COVID. It was like when theaters were just starting to open up again yeah. and things like that. Yeah. People didn't rem- want to go watch slow, intense, meditative movies <laughs> on the meaning of life in the year 2021. <laughs> you um, and I did, but we are not. Yes, people. you and I did. And we had great conversations about it. But um, yes, some of those movies, if not all of them, we will talk about on this podcast. But Anyway, so I did pull, um, I pulled three reviews that I want to read real quick. Um, and I sincerely apologize. I cannot pronounce this name, but I will try my best. It is uh, a writer from Slash Film and their name is Hoi Tran Bui. That's the best I can do. I'm very sorry. Um, but uh, the quote that I pulled says, the enormity of this film intimidates me. And it hypnotizes me and seduces me and captures me until it feels as if the green has grown like moss over my entire body. But rather than threatening to choke, the Green Knight injects a new source of oxygen into the sword and sorcery genre. Mm. Which, speaking as someone who loves sword and sorcery genres, uh, I do think that this movie does do that. It's adding a very new and fresh uh addition to that genre because I haven't really seen many uh yeah you know films that approach that genre from this particular angle so I I mean I love the middle ages like medieval history I think it's so fascinating I hate so many well not hate but like I get frustrated with so many medieval movies because I think they're just really boring uninspired takes on the era and what's cool about the era which is how freaking weird it is and this movie was like like this the experience of watching this movie was like oh this is what i have wanted all along i didn't even realize it and now i'm seeing it on screen this is exactly what i have always longed for medieval movies to be and it's great well i'm very happy for you that you got that um (laughs) okay my next review comes from vince mancini at uprocks 
And he says, the beauty of the Green Knight is that it's so fully realized on every level, score, cinematography, production design, acting, that even when you don't know entirely what Lowry is on about, you can't look away. It's almost as if every individual shot has a narrative arc unto itself. It's so compelling on a micro level that the big picture becomes irrelevant. You stop worrying what does this mean and where is this going and simply savor the moment like a creature of pure sensual pleasure. And I thought that was really interesting because it it touches on both of my relationships to this movie. The one side being like, this is a bottomless ocean of just I could dive into this over and over and over again but also I could just sit here and and be here for the vibes and it's still an incredible experience Mm -hmm. so I thought that this review kind of touched on both of those things and the two different experiences I've had while watching this movie um so here's one last review it's from Josh Josh Larson at Larson on film this one's a little bit longer but It says, the leisurely pace isn't the only thing that distinguishes the Green Knight from a more standard cinematic work of sword and sorcery. There is also the subversive streak at at the movie's center. Rather than a rousing portrait of medieval gallantry, the film asks, what if you don't want to be a knight? Then later, what if you do, but you don't have what it takes? And ultimately, does the legend waiting to be told about you care either way? At its heart, the Green Knight is about the very idea of legends and myths, how they grow, what they reveal, what they conceal. I love that one too. I love that. I love that. Yeah. I had a lot of fun finding quotes for this movie Mm -hmm. because they were either like, I don't get it. This makes no sense. (laughs) Or like, this is so profound and art. We love it. Um, But yeah. Okay. So uh, gosh, something about this movie that's stuck with (laughs) me. I mean. Everything. Yeah. I mean. I literally cannot even think of one moment. So I won't. I'll just say everything we've talked about on this podcast episode and more. What about you, Geneva? What's going to stick with you about this movie? (laughs) I just like once or twice a year in my movie watching experience, I will just have a movie that completely like takes over my brain and I just cannot stop obsessing over it for weeks on end and it just becomes a core part of my personality and like I feel like this is one of those movies for me like this is just so like I said I didn't know that I needed it until I saw it and I was like I need this (laughs) this is who I am yeah I I love this movie there's so much to get into there's so many different interpretations that you can have of it like obviously just in the course of this conversation there have been many things we've agreed on and there have been many things that we disagree on and I don't think either of us are wrong and either of us are completely right like there's just it's almost a Rorschach test in the you know there's so many different ways to read it and so many different things that you can take away from it and they're all valid um and i think that's beautiful and this movie is just it's so well made and i wish more people had seen it but i'm so happy that it exists yeah i hope it grows to not just be a cult movie but i don't think that's going to happen i agree and i hope david lowry makes another movie set in the i don't know medieval times or just I don't know I will see whatever he makes <laughs> but he, uh, I, I would love to see him planning. make another movie set in this vein mm-hmm. I do think he is planning another movie set in this vein um, but only time will tell uh, yeah. but I've read articles that say that he might be but 
Okay, I'm really glad that we uh, celebrated our one-year anniversary with this movie. It made me very happy. Uh, Congratulations, Geneva, on surviving this many episodes with me. It's been an honor and a privilege. (laughs) Thank you. Right back at you. (laughs) I don't know Um, how you did it, but you did. You know, it's been a fun journey. Uh, But yeah, genuinely, (laughs) I'm absolutely surprised and thrilled that we've done this for a year. And um, thank you to all of our listeners. I know that we we do have a few consistent listeners and um, I am super grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for anybody who listens to anything, but the people who have been pretty, Mm -hmm. um, I think just like loyal to us throughout the year and bearing with us as we have like grown our model and changed it and bought microphones because the audio quality <laughs> was awful. And uh, just for sticking welcome, with us. Guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really just yeah. been super fun. And uh, here's to one more year, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, Possibly so, more. I don't know. I we'll mean, see. time will tell. That'd be to super awesome. Geneva, what if we run out of movies to talk about? <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, I will never run out of movies to talk about because I yeah. love talking about movies. But I mean, literally, there's like a hundred new movies that come out every year. So oh like mm-hmm. even if we were to run out of movies. I was just thinking the, the other past, day, like which we never would. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking the other day that like you had put Twilight on the list as like this is a movie that I don't like, but was so formative to me, you know, and we had a great time talking about that. There are so many movies that I'm like I've seen this dozens of times. I don't even like this movie, but I would love to talk about it. So got to think yeah. about some of those to put in the pod. That could be really fun. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, anyway, okay. Thanks, listeners. Thank you, Geneva. It's a happy one year anniversary you, to us all. It's Thanks, a, a group effort. It takes a village to raise a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I love it. Cool. All right. So, uh, yeah, we will see you next week, everybody. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.